And so that's two extra strength Tylenol. How many paracetamols is that? <laughs> this is beyond my mathematical skills. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by why all of the commercials on television seem to be for insurance companies. Do you Mm. all watch as much television as I do? Probably. And notice that all of the commercials seem to be for insurance companies. Or for medications. So I covered that (laughs) last time because I've noticed that my television definitely thinks that I'm... 65 or older based on what I watch. So I, yes, I would agree with you. Well, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health. I am joined once again by Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome back, Jess. Thank you. Happy to be here. And we have a fantastic guest today, also from the Environmental Health Department at the Boston University School of Public Health, Dr. Jeanette Peters. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Matt Fox. We are so glad to have you. (laughs) So uh, as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning, where Nick promises you will find loads of really interesting public health programs and tools. And also, uh, if you could head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever the kids are getting their podcasts these days and give us a rating, we'd love Ratings, and if you give us a, a review, we will read it here on the air, even if it's a, a bad one. But really? I'm sure it'll be a really good one. I'm sure it'll be a good There's one. no censorship. No censorship whatsoever. <laughs> so now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on the effects of regular acetaminophen use sent in by a listener. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about excess mortality as the most important measure in COVID times. And I'm really curious your thoughts on that one because I have been thinking about this one for a long time and I can never figure out where I'd land. And then in our final segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just have us fascinated. So segment one. So the article we're going to look at talked about the impact of regular acetaminophen use and it was published in Circulation and entitled Regular Acetaminophen Use and Blood Pressure in People with Hypertension, the PATH-BP Trial by first author Ian McIntyre of the Department of Renal Medicine in the National Health Services in the UK. Lothian? I don't know. I'm, I'm terrible with pronouncing these names. So this one had got some press, so I'll give you some headlines on this one. So Yahoo News says blood pressure risk for chronic pain patients using paracetamol long-term. And probably worth noting that acetaminophen is is the term we use here in the U.S., but paracetamol, I think, is the more commonly used term. Long-term paracetamol use fits, fit, use, fit, cause blood pressure. I don't know what that one means, but that's a BBC headline. The Guardian says long-term paracetamol use may be a risk for people with high blood pressure. And Google News says warning to millions of people who take paracetamol regularly. So Jess, can you walk us through the study? Tell us what they did and what they found? Sure. So this is an interesting study. Thank you, Matt. And yes, the implications could potentially be huge. And that was one of the reasons why this one jumped out to us as being particularly interesting. 
I also noticed as I was taking my notes on this article, I cannot for the life of me spell acetaminophen, mm-hmm. no matter how many times I try. So I over, 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 sometimes. over, over, over. It's what, a, what a hard <laughs> word to spell. But um, anyway, so as most of us are familiar with, acetaminophen, as it's referred to in the U.S., is a widely used frontline therapy for chronic pain and also for acute pain because of its perceived safety, especially um, in comparison to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications. And a serious of observational studies, each with their own specific limitations, have found over the last number of years that acetaminophen can be associated with increased blood pressure. However, no clinical trials to date had been conducted that might address some of these limitations in the observational studies, which included small sample size and inability to control to more comprehensively a drill for some confounders. And so no clinical trials had been conducted to kind of look at this relationship between acetaminophen and blood pressure. And so this is what these authors set out to do, in part because even small increases in blood pressure for patients with hypertension can result in an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, as the authors talk through in this paper. So even small increases of blood pressure can have significant health effects, both for individuals and across populations more generally. So what did they do here? They were focused specifically on the effects of acetaminophen with their primary outcome being mean daytime systolic blood pressure. Their secondary endpoints included 24-hour systolic blood pressure measurements where they had participants wear the blood pressure cuff that was taking their, their blood pressure throughout the day. And they were also looking at daytime and 24-hour diastolic blood pressure measurements, um, specifically focused among adults with hypertension. So the participants in this study are part of the PATH-BP study, which is a study of hypertension in the UK. And so the study design here, this was a double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover study. I love the crossover (laughs) study. Very clever. So this is a study where... Participants in this study have a period of time where they are both exposed and also unexposed to the specific treatment of interest. And so they are, they kind of serve as their own control in that sort of design. There were 110 individuals who met the inclusion criteria and were enrolled. And so what these participants did is they took two weeks. On, we'll start with one sample, one one side. They started with two weeks taking acetaminophen, one gram, four times a day, which is the equivalent of two extra strength Tylenols four times a day. We were trying to clarify what exactly this dosage was, but so one gram of acetaminophen four times a day, which they define as the maximum recommended daily dose and a commonly, I'm quoting, commonly prescribed dose for chronic pain in the UK. And I think it also is in the US. But these participants were taking that dose four times a day. Okay, can I just ask about this? Because every time I, I find that I have some kind of condition requiring one of these over-the-counter medications, and they have very clear limitations on how much you're supposed to take. Mm-hmm. And whenever I go to you know the doctor for something, they always say, "Oh no, 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 that's don't, I know, I like, know, right? Under a doctor's you know care, you could take well above that, and they'll often want you to take more than that. So I'm always very confused as to what how much. Especially the with the anti-inflammatories, is. I think the yeah. anti-inflammatories yeah. they're yes. just like take them like candy almost, right? I, I don't I know. Just, yeah. 
to our listeners. Anyway, I don't think we are no, we're not suggesting for that, that people should be taking them like candy. But, um, but this, <laughs> Especially this is the way some of us eat candy. But anyway. <laughs> true. In any event, so the design of this study, there was a two-week period where participants took the acetaminophen daily, followed by a two-week washout period where their system would be cleansed from the drug, and then two weeks on placebo. Half the participants did it that way. The other half of the participants did it in reverse, where they started with the two weeks of placebo, they had the two-week washout period, and then they had two weeks on acetaminophen. At baseline and at day 14 of each period, both the placebo and the treatment period, clinical measurements were taken, 24-hour monitoring was taken for blood pressure, and also a blood sample. And then at midway through the study, at day four and day seven, the participant came into the clinic for blood pressure measurements, but not blood sample. The blood samples were measured for urea, electrolytes, liver function tests, and acetaminophen concentration to try to look at other implications that these drugs might be having on this person's body. They used a mixed method approach where the treatment period and baseline blood pressure were fitted as fixed effects and the participant was fitted as an individual as a random effect. And they had a few people who dropped out, so they compared a per-protocol analysis to a modified intention-to-treat analysis. So the results of their mixed model analysis reflected an increase in mean daytime systolic blood pressure of 4.7 millimeters of mercury, ranging from about 3 to a little more than 5. This was obviously a statistically significant finding. They also noticed a parallel increase in the 24-hour systolic blood pressure measurements of approximately the same level, 4.2 millimeters of mercury increase. They noted smaller increases associated with diastolic blood pressure, about 1.6 or 1.4, based on whether they were looking at the clinical measurements or the 24-hour measurements. And overall, the clinical measurements were very similar in terms of uh, magnitude to the 24-hour monitoring data. And the results were nearly identical comparing the pro-protocol group and the modified intention to treat group that was a little bit larger. They also noted an, an increase in alanine amino transferase associated with the acetaminophen exposure that was detected by day four and sustained until day 14, but which declined shortly within the washout period. And that would be a liver That's enzyme. That's a liver enzyme. That's my understanding. It's concerned about liver toxicity. Right, right, liver toxicity. So their conclusion is that acetaminophen use at this dosage is associated with clinically significant increase in systolic and diastolic blood pressure among people with hypertension. So noting again that their study population was limited to people with hypertension. But they note here that this is a population in which even small differences, small increases in blood pressure can relate to increased risk of, of negative cardiovascular events. And again, as we discussed, this is a dosage that is fairly commonly used both by people with chronic pain and also people with acute pain. Okay, so... I think, I, I may be wrong, but I think this is the first time we've ever discussed a crossover trial in the course of this this podcast. I, I could be wrong. Nick will go through the archives while we're speaking and he'll find an example <laughs> where we did, but let's just pretend that it wasn't. So the key the key thing about a, a crossover trial is the the strength of it is you you need fewer people in the yeah. study because, as you say, people act as their own control. So everything that is time invariant, so you know all of those factors that are just characteristics of the individual that don't change, those are are controlled for inherently. So it's a really strong design. You can have a study with only what was the I forgot what the sample size you said was, was 110. 110. and yeah. and still you know feel like you're you've got reasonable balance. So that's the advantage. The the reason why, of course, you don't see these more often 
is because it only works for things for which the effects are transient. So <laughs> if you have you know, the effect of an exposure that is long lasting, then you can't do a crossover. And so presumably they felt confident that in this case, the effects of acetaminophen on blood pressure would be short term. You could have a washout period and there would be no cumulative residual effects. So with that, I, Jeanette, what was your what was your take on this study? Good study, bad study? I thought it was a good study because I started to write questions and as, as I wrote the questions, there was an answer. Yeah. So questions like, how long does this last? Is it reversible? Similar to what you said, is it within measurement error or day-to-day -day variability? Those are the questions that came to my mind and it seemed to do a pretty good job of going through and addressing a lot of the issues that somebody would come to someone's mind. So in that way, I think it was a well-designed study. I think where my mind went to was, what do you tell people who have blood pressure? Yeah. So I started to look up what is available for people who have blood right. pressure. And it's like the only thing that works is a low-dose aspirin right. that doesn't <laughs> raise your blood pressure. So I'm thinking... What do you tell people who are having chronic pain? Do you tell them go back to ibuprofen? Do you tell them you, you just have to do a low-dose aspirin and just bear the pain? And I noted what the AARP was telling its constituents, and they were like trying to balance. You could, you yeah. could see their struggle trying to balance. What do you tell somebody who has high blood pressure and is in chronic And pain? where do they come down? What do they say? Talk to your doctor. <laughs> see, this is, this is the... This is the thing. So, you know, so it reminds me. So there was the American, was it the American Academy of Pediatrics? I can't remember. One of the, one of the guideline groups mm -hmm. came out with a recommendation yesterday that all children and adolescents should be screened for anxiety, yeah. which I am totally in support of. But then, you know, as it was presented on the news last night, they were saying, you know, that everyone should be screened. And then, you know, for those with anxiety, they should be referred for treatment so they can get the support that they need. Well, mm. we have a shortage of providers right now with the kids we are, are currently trying to get uh, support for mental health and, mm. and, and anxiety issues. Like, just recommendations right. have to be come along with resources and, and thought and care. So it, it just, you know, it reminded me of that because I agree with you. When I was reading this, I thought to myself, I mean, it's the, the alternative isn't do nothing because right. <laughs> these are people who are taking this medication not for fun, but because they have chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And so you are you really have to think about the the balances of harms and benefits and what the risks are with the alternatives. The authors make the point in the article, though, as well, that uncontrolled pain also increases blood pressure. Yeah. And so it's almost like this this sort of finding, if this is the the first line kind of perceived to be the safest medication, it needs to be viewed in the context of what else. And in the absence of anything else, that's also not good for blood pressure. So kind of what is the blood pressure increase associated with doing nothing for people in chronic pain? And maybe this actually, maybe there is a benefit in, in that sort of comparison. Right. I, I think you always have to think about what's the relevant comparison. And right. in this case, I, I don't know whether you can draw conclusions based only off of one study, I mean, we really need to think about, you know, what different sets of comparisons are that we could be using to make these judgments. Also, I mean, I think this this comes in line with as other research on acetaminophen and pregnancy. You know, mm -hmm. I think acetaminophen has been viewed more generally as this really safe medication yeah. with no side effects. You can kind of, you're saying, pop it like candy, give it to young children, take it when you're pregnant. And it's one of, I think, the very few 
pain medications that are considered safe to take during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But that was that was reversed um, right. in the last maybe six months or so, saying that there no that there were potential neurological effects and developmental effects potentially associated with taking acetaminophen during pregnancy, which again led to a very similar debate of what are the consequences mm-hmm. of untreated pain right. in pregnant women if there are no other alternatives. So yeah, it's an interesting study. I did feel like I liked the writing of it, just mm-hmm. to give some kudos to these authors. It was very clear. And the journal, I'm, I'm not a regular reader of the circulation as a journal, but I really liked the way they have this box on clinical perspective. It was, it was very easy to understand mm-hmm. as someone mm-hmm. who is not familiar with this literature, which I really appreciated as the reader. So, uh, so let me let me echo that, but let me let me just get to the one of the questions that I had about the study because they so they do have this clinical perspective box in which they have <laughs> you know a a set of bullet points that kind of summarize the key findings from the study as they relate to clinical care because this is a this is a clinical journal it's not a it's not an, uh, an epidemiologic journal. And so they, they, they end with caution should be taken when prescribing mm-hmm. acetaminophen, particularly in those with increased cardiovascular risk, and opportunities to stop acetaminophen or reduce the dose should be considered. Now, that's you could say that's a somewhat tempered statement. Caution should be taken and should be considered. That's, those are fair. At the same time, you know, this is it's a, it's a strong study design, in my opinion. It's, mm-hmm. it's well executed, but it's a study of 100 right. people taking acetaminophen for two weeks. I, I feel like we don't have the the answers to all of the key questions. And we have one study. We don't have, uh, you know, a huge body of literature. No, it's not built on nothing, to be fair to the authors. But mm-hmm. still, you know, I wonder whether that's really warranted. I don't know. Jeanette, what do you think? I think I had a, a similar perspective, that it was a real small study in a small population, a population that has been followed and studied over a while. And... Yeah, it seemed to be a very strong, <laughs> strong recommendation based on a couple of former studies. I think there were some studies. One was from the Nurses Health Study mm-hmm. yep. and this study to say that you should stop or alter the amount of dose that a doctor gives. I thought that was a bit strong for the for the first clinical trial. So I'd be curious for both of you, your experiences, because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I suspect the authors would would say mm-hmm. that this was this is not a strong statement, but I, I still read it the way you do. Jeanette, mm-hmm. I, I, to me, that's a it's a it's a you know, it's pretty confident in the findings. And, you know, the design would would certainly support, you know, the ability to make some causal statements. But at the same time, it is, you know, it's one study. We don't understand all of the details yet, I, I still find it to be a bit strong. And I'm curious whether you all find that in your publications, particularly with clinical journals, you are pressured to make a policy type statement or a clinical recommendation statement and whether or not you've had any experience with with resisting that. I feel like I am encouraged in the opposite direction. Yes. Encouraged um, not in to. In the not opposite to, direction. Yes. yes. I, I in by the, journals? Maybe not by journals. who are part of papers usually don't like yeah. strong statements. No, and I, yeah. I agree with that. But I'm, I'm, my experience yeah. has been that journals will often push mm. us to say something. Because otherwise, why why are you doing this if, if it has no policy implications? Yeah. But the, 
why are we doing this is to build towards a policy, not not to make policy recommendations off of a single study. I don't. Right. I mean, I think I think our training, or I feel mm-hmm. I feel my training pushes me to not make any conclusions <laughs> as to what this might Im- as what the implications might be. And I think we all kind of come up against that, where you want to interpret your findings and you are the one who might be best situated to make sense of it for other people and not have other people interpret it. We've talked about that before here, Mm -hmm. that the worst case scenario is that someone runs off with your study and interprets it in a way that is not aligned with how you think that what the data says or what actually the data says. And so it is this, that's a fine line of trying to, you know, kind of couch the phrasing so you could suggest what an implication might be without kind of coming down strongly that this is what you think your study implies. So I've done that where I, you know, and I kind of feel, you don't feel great about doing that because you're kind of, it's like, a, you know, the fuzzy gray language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jeanette, what's your experience been? So my experience just recently, we, we did a paper through environmental health perspective and they were very strong on, is this speculative? Mm-hmm. If it's speculative, really put that in. We speculate. Oh, so they wanted to make sure that statements that were made could be backed up. And so they were strong on the other end, which was I like that. very different. Yeah. I I I have been in the I've been feel like I've been in the in the position of being pushed really hard and having to say, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel qualified. I mean, I don't feel like I have the training to say, I mean, so for example, I mean, exactly what we've talked about here is to me, even if you're willing to say, I'm, I'm willing to accept causal, you know, I can make a causal attribution here based on a hundred people in one study, strong design, but, mm-hmm. but one study, even then it isn't clear that the answer is stop using acetaminophen because you have to weigh the the alternatives. You have to weigh the you know the mm-hmm. acceptability, the people's willing to tolerate chronic pain, the fact that other pain medications come along with increases in blood pressure as well. So, I mean, you really have to know a lot more and you have to have a lot better training in policy recommendations than I have. <laughs> I don't. I ju- I just don't feel qualified. To, to make that. So it's just one that's always, always bothered me. And I also looked up, you know, what do the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do besides just raising blood pressure? And then they were ta- some papers were talking about it blunting the effect of certain hypertensive medications. So that's another effect mm. of those. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's interesting. Yeah, um, including diuretics. So some indications of it doing other things. Um, and it also blunts the effect of low-dose aspirin for somebody who's had heart trouble and needs to take the low-dose aspirin. Interesting. So, yeah, so there's a lot of other things that come along with these non-steroidal than just the blood pressure raising. Yeah, so all that is balanced because the liver toxicity also in... Right. in, in, in <laughs> it's all about these competing risks and right. well, multiple I mean, risks. And, and, I mean, as you say, I mean, there's, there's, there's the liver, there's a possibility of liver toxicity, but then with the non-steroidals, they come along with the... You know, the stomach issues yes. and, and potential bleeding. So there's, I mean, there's, right. there are pros and cons to all of these yes. things that have to be weighed. And I, you know, I just don't feel qualified. But this is one of those health situations where there are so many people who experience hypertension and take acetaminophen that it seems like it would be the circumstance to do one of those more holistic sorts of assessments to be able to weigh these countervailing risks. That this would be the perfect situation. Mm-hmm. To, and, and this um, may be, you know, that, that, this is a piece of it. This builds towards a larger mm-hmm. set of questions, mm-hmm. which I'm totally in support of. Yeah. So, okay, so it seems to me we all come down on the side of this is a this is a good study. 
it's just limited in you know how far we can we can take it the the only two things i wanted to to just circle back to in terms of you know how good of a study it was you mentioned that some of the participants didn't finish the study mm-hmm. though it was you know as a percentage of of you know it was less than 10% of the participants so it strikes me as you know not not too bad actually mm-hmm. for for a right. study although it's a you know it's a it's a pretty short you know, period of time, you shouldn't be losing a lot of people just because people get exhausted with being in the study. So presumably it's it's in some way could be related to the medication, but I don't know, you know, I don't have any reason to say that that's true. The other question would be blood pressure is notoriously difficult to get an accurate measure of timing of taking the blood pressure measurement, <laughs> who does it, their train, you know, all of those things factor in. That should be presumably unrelated to which medication you're taking. So that's going to be measurement, non-differential measurement error, which would suggest to me that maybe, in fact, there there are even larger potential benefits. But they powered this based on 1.6 millimeters of mercury. Is that what is that what we decided? Yeah, that? yeah, with they, 100 and, millimeters is, of mercury. It was 110 patients. Yeah, is that a is that a? I mean, is that meaningful? I mean, they say it's meaningful, so I I trust them. It's not my field, but feels small to me. Anyone know? Jeanette. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was asking. Is that within measurement error? Is that within, you know, somebody taking a a blood pressure? I I think it is. I think it's within two people taking your blood pressure or just what position your feet were in, whether your hand was up, whether you're talking. There's so many things that affect a blood pressure measurement that one point six Okay, so I... Always schedule my doctor's appointments for first thing in the morning, and then I don't eat breakfast before I go, so that my blood pressure will be lower than it, it might have been later in the day. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? I, I do all these breathing I exercises. That. That I do try that to talk as well. To me. Like, I, I don't talk to me. I'm doing my breathing exercise. <laughs> I do that as well. <laughs> I'm trying to artificially lower my yes. blood pressure here. Yeah. So I meditate. I'm, you know, anything I can do to bring down, you know, it's got to have an effect a little uh, bit, right? Yeah. I have my, I have the app where my blood pressure is so low that I've been called like a, a two points away from a carrot. That was <laughs> my doctor used to call me. Like it's very low, and oh, and so I often get you like like they're like really is it that low? And I'm like it's that. Or <laughs> like when I was pregnant, it became dangerously low. Oh, like there, wow. Yeah. So, um, so you do the opposite. I have so the opposite like effect. I need to take some more Tylenol. Just jack up on Tylenol. There you go. <laughs> no, but um, no, I, I, with I, I, I mix it with well. no, But no, I think the authors did make the point later on that the magnitude of difference that they did find, they attributed yep. to a 20% increase mm-hmm. in risk in a cardiovascular event, I think within that year, which is huge for taking two Tylenol for two weeks. Yeah, fair enough. And so, I, it's hard right. for me to imagine, but I uh, obviously it's not my field, so I, I trust them. Okay, so any any last thoughts anyone wants to raise on this study before we move on? I am going to take that as a as a no. So let's move on then to our, our second segment, which is our deep dive, where we want to talk about an article that was in the International Journal of Epidemiology. Full disclosure, I am not on the editorial board of of International Journal of Epidemiology. Just want to point that out. And it was entitled, Measuring Excess Mortality Due to the COVID-19 Pandemic, Progress and Persistent Challenges by Stephanie Hellinger and Bernardo Lanza Quiroz. And I was interested in this article because, as I said in the intro, this is something that I have been struggling with throughout the pandemic, which is, you know, what is the appropriate measure that we should be using 
to judge the the impact of the pandemic. And they they make the point that COVID has had an impact on many more things than just mm-hmm. COVID mortality and COVID hospitalizations itself. It's led us to impact measures that have had impacts on the economy, on mental health, on people's uh, care-seeking behaviors that have led to increases in uh, or, or putting off of, of cancer treatment and cancer screening and things like that. So there are impacts that go well beyond just simply looking at the COVID statistics, which we all have spent the past two years looking at on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And they also note that if you're looking at just the COVID statistics, it's really difficult to interpret from place to place for a number of different reasons. So different places have different amounts of testing that they're doing. They have different ways of assigning COVID deaths. So the the ability to compare, not even just across countries, but even here in the United States, comparing across states. So here in Massachusetts, about two, three months ago, they revised the definition of a COVID death and such that we went from, I believe, number 11 in the country in terms of deaths per Mm 100,000 to 32 or something like that (laughs) overnight. (laughs) Yeah. Just by changing the definition. Now, I think we've talked about this before. I, I think it was the right thing to do. And I think it puts our definition more in line with what other states are doing. But, you know, there is clear variability across states across countries. And so the ability to to really interpret that data becomes incredibly difficult on its own, let alone trying to make comparisons. So their argument is that using all-cause mortality is really the measure that we should be looking at. And the benefit there is you don't have to worry about whether or not a COVID death was truly a COVID death. What we care about is, you know, during the period of the pandemic, has all-cause mortality gone up? Because if, you know, there was the argument made early on by a lot of people that you know, we were just coding everything as a COVID death. If you had a, you know, you had a, a, a car accident and you died, but you happen to have had COVID, you would get coded as COVID death. And there is actually some truth to that. I mean, there, there was overcoding of, of COVID deaths, but the implication was that actually there is no problem, that we're just pretending there is this, you know, increased mortality. And you would see that in the overall mortality, we have seen it, right? The, the excess mortality has been very high. The challenge, I think, mm-hmm. is that if we use all-cost mortality, and I do agree it's a, it's a good measure, you can't tease out what is actually led to the increase in all-cost mortality. So is it COVID itself? Surely that's part of it. Is it the changes in care-seeking behavior? Is it the impacts on the economy? you know, any of those things? Or is it as a certain group of people like to claim, is it all, you know, increased mortality caused by the vaccines? It isn't. But can I add one more to to your lineup? What came to my mind as I was looking at this was comparing COVID related deaths like, like you've defined, but also what was the role of how the country responded? Yeah. So I was looking across country and for the U.S., the idea of COVID was very decisive, meaning families stopped talking, accusations were hurled that you killed grandma. Yep, yep. There was just such a battle that I think contributed also to to death. Where do we put that in? Because I look at countries that yeah. had the reverse, where, where there was lower deaths, like Japan, countries where government trust is more, like Norway. So I, I'm yep. wondering 
not just looking at things related to it, but our response to it. How do we tease that out? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's all really, really difficult. So I'm I'm supportive of the the use of all cause mortality, but I, I also think it has limitations in terms of what we do with it. So thoughts? What 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 do we do, Jess? I think I, I was just thinking about your comment about the anti-vaxxers. And it has been interesting to me how I think the, you know, the, the movement against vaccinations have picked up on this issue of excess mortality as a mechanism to to try to understand or to try to explain that COVID death is not from COVID. That kind of there there is this there's a large scale conversation, and I don't know if any of you have anti-vaxxers in your circles of family members, I do not. but it is fascinating because there's a lot of discussion about the data is not accurate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that the data is not accurate and this distrust of the data mm-hmm. that then is is tremendously encouraged by, for example, when Massachusetts changes the definition of yep. a COVID death from 60 days to 30 days after diagnosis, which totally validates the idea that you can just go in and shift definitions of, of your endpoints. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden the whole picture changes and Massachusetts dramatically changes the ranking. And, and what does that, you know, what does that mean if you can make those kind of changes? And I think this whole issue of the excess mortality or the overall mortality has has been amplified in this discussion about vaccinations. I know we talked about a paper maybe a year ago that was led by Rochelle Walensky mm-hmm. and Jeremy mm-hmm. Faust yep. at MGH about young people kind of looking at showing or demonstrating as they as they were trying to do that there was tremendous increase in excess mortality from before pandemic to during the pandemic among young adults, that this was adults, I think, in the 30 to 50 age range, kind of ones at that time that were not typically observed as dying from COVID, but trying to make a case for the corollary mortality and that's going along with the pandemic. And that paper was impactful at that time. And it highlighted things having to that have have come out later, having to do with with overdose, suicide, Mm. other sorts of, of kind of auxiliary factors to the pandemic that are increasing death. And that was kind of the early use of this. And now I feel like it's it's kind of leaning into this more kind of more political realm. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I just I can I, I don't know. I feel like I conclude that when these data definitions are shifting, it becomes very difficult for public health to kind of maintain our public trust. I, I would agree with that. I do want to just say one thing, which is you, you mentioned all of those things. And I, they're all right. But uh, except suicide. Mm. Suicide has not increased. Mental health okay. has, has okay. deteriorated. But suicide rates have not increased, at least in the U.S., fortunately. Okay. And you could you could postulate reasons for that. I mean, could be that people are home and therefore they're actually around people who care about them. So even though their mental health is getting worse, there's somebody there and I, who knows why. I mean, that's just one mm-hmm. of many hypotheses. But anyway, but I agree with you. I think if we had chosen a metric early on that was consistent, we would have been in a much better position. It's tough though because I think it's tough. It's tough early on. Oh yeah, I'm not blaming anyone for this. There was no way to know. I'm just saying if we had. Right, right. But it leads to this confusing question, kind of right now, which is the fundamental question of how do we evaluate the impact of the pandemic in aggregate, kind of including death from the disease, but including death from factors that would not, you know, from the deaths that would not have happened had the pandemic not been occurring. And so how much of this is the fact that we don't have great data collection systems worldwide? I mean, we we have reasonable data collection systems here in the U.S., but nothing like what you'd find, let's say, in, in the Scandinavian countries yes. where you've got fabulous data that is all linked and you can really understand what's going on. And obviously, the Scandinavian data has problems, too, but 
not nearly to the degree that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And then you, you know, you shift from there to, you know, a lot of places in sub-Saharan Africa where there there isn't really a functioning civil registration system to be able to actually even capture all-cause mortality. So I don't know. I mean, how much of this is just data? Yeah, because I, I noticed, you know, all along during the pandemic, people were saying, oh, certain countries are doing well. Africa is yep. doing well. And, and I was thinking to myself, I don't think so. No. <laughs> right? No. I don't think so. So... Yeah, I, I'm thinking about countries where people weren't even registered for that. I mean, I was talking to another professor who was, had collaborators in South America, and lots of people died that they didn't even formally bury, right? So you can think of countries where you might bury somebody in a plot behind the yard, and there's no... Formal record-keeping. Formal record-keeping at all. That, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and I, I suspect that's a big part of, or that is part of the discrepancy between what we're seeing in, in places where, you know, we just, we don't have the data to be able to say how much COVID is impacting large mm. parts of sub-Saharan Africa. But I do think even in the U.S., I think, you know, these kind of more general consent, like a more general consensus as to how we evaluate the impact of the pandemic would be worthwhile. And that was what that was, I thought, the overall value of this paper, kind of reflecting on how should we be measuring this and let's do it in a consistent way. And I think or otherwise, you know, we the, the data starts to, you know, it can start to conflict also if you're measuring things differently, even in the same region, not even uh, region. Right, just right. look at Massachusetts. Right. Just look at maybe Western Massachusetts versus yeah. mm-hmm. this Eastern Massachusetts, or just between Chelsea or Dorchester versus Lexington. How it's measured? You know, how many people are there actually yeah. trying to do that kind of measurement? And how much testing is being done to be able yeah. to attribute any of it to COVID? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so 100 years from now, when the next (laughs) pandemic hits, because there won't be another one for 100 years, we know that, are we (laughs) going to have learned these lessons? Or are we going to be right back to square one and Jeanette is, (laughs) you think we're not? I think about, so every year I have Patricia Fabian come to my class to talk about her research on how flu and the cold, how it's transmitted. And she did all this research that said it was aerosolized in small droplets. And then years later, we have a pandemic and people spent all this money putting up a plexiglass to to shield against aerosol. And I'm thinking... Did you look at any research before you did it? Why are we still arguing about aerosol versus droplets? And so I have a feeling in the next hundred, you're giving us a hundred years. I'm giving us a hundred years because yes. I can't deal with this again for another hundred years. <laughs> and by the way, I plan to be there for it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You and I both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I share your. I share your skepticism. I, I just think we are. I think we'll learn some of the lessons. Don't get me wrong, but I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of them that we may. We may just miss. I don't know. Because don't we're know. not even learning the lessons now. It's not I like know. it's not like every day we're improving the way we collect data. Some states are, but on a whole, for the U.S. on a whole, I don't think we're any better now at you know a cohesive way of collecting data. I think okay. it's it's like two steps forward and one step back. I feel yeah. like we, we, yeah, yeah. we are making progress. We but, are. You know, I think there there is there is progress, and especially at kind of consolidating the approach and standardizing the approach to mm-hmm. data collection and what data is being collected. I mean, there is undoubtedly Im- improvement. It's yeah. it's just maybe a little short of what we, some of us feel like we might need or what might be optimal. Right? Totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's then move on to our last segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, which needs no introduction. 
Jess, you want to go first? What do you got for us? Sure. I have. This is kind of an article about a new policy in the state of California in the U.S. That California, the headline is California reveals its plan to phase out new gas-powered cars by 2035. Mm. And I was struck by this because it's incredibly ambitious. They were saying in the in the article that currently only about 12% of new vehicles sold right now are zero emission. And so to bring that up to 100% by 2035 is, you know, is kind of awesome to think about, but also strikingly ambitious. And I was interested in, in part, some of the disparities embedded in this sort of Mm. structure Mm -hmm. and kind of what that would mean. Like, I think, you know, and, you know, there are obviously climate benefits for saying these are not old cars. So these are people buying new cars that they have to be, you know, zero emission. And there obviously are are benefits for climate and the environment to kind of put in that sort of strategy. And obviously this would not be the last time that an environmental strategy was set in place that where the goal was not attained mm-hmm. within the, the time for the time period specified. But there are many states, including Massachusetts, that have tended to follow California's lead for these sorts of environmental yeah, regulations. And we know that these, you know, zero emission cars are are at least right now a lot more expensive than other cars. And so I was thinking about kind of what becomes, you know, the consequence of this sort of policy, which is effectively saying you can only buy new cars that are zero emission, but they're also going to be more expensive and other new cars are not going to be available to you. So either you buy these highly expensive fuel efficient cars or you stick with an old car. And so I was just interested in kind of the, the consequence of that sort of decision going forward that it was it wasn't even like 80% of cars or 70% of new vehicles it was 100% by 2030 and, and so yeah I'm just curious do you think that what's really going to happen is that obviously that so that's new cars mm-hmm. but that you would still presumably be able to buy a used car that was not a zero emission vehicle and what'll end up happening is eventually those zero emission vehicles that are new will become old mm-hmm. and then they'll become used cars and eventually you'll get rid of all of the the gas powered vehicles, but it will come over time, and it will come to a point where those are those cars are cheaper, not because they are really cheaper, but because they are old. So, what's the turnover? Yeah. I was wondering. I, I was question. wondering going back to the, like the, when we went from unleaded and leaded. Right. How long did it take to phase out cars? And okay, do, do <laughs> does anybody else in the room remember going to a gas station and having to say? You tell people that now, like kids now, and they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right. So yeah. these, the, so, I mean, these changes are made, like, you know, and it's, and it's these big, bold policies, and it's often scientists behind, you know, kind of we're talking about translating your research into practice. Like this is kind of climate research, and this is kind of saying this is the year. There were some climate scientists who were quoted who were saying, actually, we need to do it by 2030, but that was, that was determined to be too soon. And so yeah. they kind of compromised for for 2035. But this is, I mean, this is like a clear example of of research translated into public policy, which then will have all of these other kind of complications, both for, you know, for people and for the environment. So it'll be really interesting to see if other states follow suit with this or not and and how it plays out. Interesting to see where it goes. All right. Jeanette, what do you got? I couldn't find anything interesting or exciting. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. All right. But I, I do want to make one comment right. on what you said. So as soon as you know, when they were talking about turning over, being from an island community, the first thing I thought of is electricity is so okay. n- undependable. Mm. <laughs> 
I, I can't imagine during a hurricane my parents being happy if they had an electric car. Because <laughs> they basically, funny, during yeah. after the hurricane, they would drive around to charge their phone and talk to their children. I wonder about this as well. So, okay, so, so, <laughs> so I was just in South Africa and I had the app on my I had the app on my phone that I can't seem to shut off despite the fact that I don't do, which tells you when the power is going to go out. Mm-hmm. So this is like the intentional shutting off of the power, not the... And it's like every, you know, it's every day. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how you would have a, an electric car based economy in situations like that. Yeah. That, that was my first thought. I, yeah. I thought my parents would be like, uh uh-uh. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I mean, electric cars come along with the infrastructure for electric cars, right? You have to have access to the, mm-hmm. the plugs and, you know, and that's, that's you not, have to that's, build that, you right? have to build that. That's not universal. I mean, I think there's, there's a good number in certain communities of the Tesla charging stations, but, um, but the, those are exclusive to Tesla exactly. and, and, you know, people don't have these kind of hookups in their homes and apartment buildings. And so that whole infrastructure change would need to, would need to occur before this could really become a mainstream thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. All right. So mine is a, is a, is a short one as always. Jess, you know, I like a good hoax paper. <laughs> this is an old one. So this is a good back 2040, but I just hadn't heard about it until recently. So this was a case where an author had an engineer, I believe, who published a paper called Fuzzy Homogeneous Configurations. And the paper was actually generated by one of those, you know, text generating things. So it, you know, it was one of those fraudulent papers that that did not correspond to anything. Apparently it was complete gibberish. And there were things in there that were, you know, misspelled or, you know, completely lacked proofreading. Now, none of that is particularly novel in this day and age, because we know at this point that you can get absolutely anything published in a predatory journal. Mm -hmm. So what I enjoy is the variations that people do on it and how they try and make them interesting. So what I thought was interesting about this one was in addition to all of those obvious giveaways, there were the giveaways that you would only know if you were a fan of a particular show, which is that the authors of said paper were listed as Maggie Simpson, (laughs) <laughs> Edna Edna Krabappel and I don't know who the other one was but uh-huh. clearly Simpsons characters and uh-huh. this was not picked up on which I just thought was you know it's one of those things where it's very clear that I'm paying attention was that the intention though was that the in- I, I'm was that the intention that they were submitting this to demonstrate that no one was was kind of manning the ship. Or, so I, I got this from, I, I was an article about the article, okay, okay. so I don't know what the actual intention mm-hmm. was, but I figure, you know, this was 20, this was 2014, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I think by then we kind of had already demonstrated that you can get anything into, mm-hmm. into a predatory right. journal. I just think it was more, you know, people having fun with these things. I do there. So I have to say there is a part of me that wonders about the ethics of these things. Like at what point, so, for example, there was the uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who did the uh, James Lindsay who did the and his colleagues and I hate that one. It's terrible. But <laughs> one of the things that that there was one of those three authors was at a university and that person was brought up on charges from their ethics board. I don't know if it actually went anywhere or not, but you know it isn't clear to me that that is something actually that 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 requires that kind of punishment. But of all the studies, they put together all these studies and they submitted them and got several of them published. One of them mm-hmm. included made-up data. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes: It was made up for the purposes of a of a of a hoax, right? It wasn't made up in the sense of, 
be like, I'm just trying to get some hot new thing published, but it's getting published fraudulent data as a researcher at an institution. Presumably that is unethical, right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah. So it isn't clear to me where the lines on these things are, but I do find them. Amazing. <laughs> well, it is interesting. I mean, I think, you know, the, the topic of predatory journals to the mm. side, we haven't talked about here kind of the journals that just charge that maybe they're not explicitly predatory, but kind of it, during the pandemic, a lot of journals, it appears, have struggled financially and now have publication fees where they didn't used to. And and not just open access fees, but just publicate kind of flat out publication fees, which as a, as a researcher, I feel like that kind of blurs the line in terms of not that I think some of these journals are predatory, but it kind of leads to this sense of what's the level of quality. And it used to be clearer. I think it used to be easier to understand Right, mm-hmm. that certain journals charged because they didn't maybe have the reputation or they didn't have the the, the foundation. Yep. Um, but now many more are charging to to publish, and it's it's I, I find it challenging as a researcher knowing being able to evaluate kind of quality in a way that is it feels kind of new to me in the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I, to me the the I don't I don't have a problem explicitly with them charging if they provide a quality service. It's the amount that they are charging. So has these, gone up, these, has gone it's up. It's gone up dramatically. And right. we're talking thousands right. of dollars for, you know, if you've got a if you've got a, a grant that's covering your research, then you can probably, you know, afford it. You can charge it to the grant, depending on how much it is. But if you're a doctoral student who's just done their, you know, their research, they may not have access to those funds. Or if it's a paper that you've written that doesn't actually, mm-hmm. you know, come off of grant funding, but it's just something that you were doing on the side. How do you, how do you pay for that? And is that the system that we really right. want? I, I, I don't know what the future is, but mm-hmm. it seems to be increasingly going towards higher fees, not not lower. And I think one of the unintended consequences of trying to be open access, because I, I, I know some researchers were really big on the fact that resource should be available to all, but then what happened on the reverse end of it, they started to charge researchers. And what happens is you're trying to open it to all to, to get rid of disparities in some sense, but then disparities happens on the other end because a lot of people in universities, for example, minority-serving universities, just can't afford the fee, yeah. the $3,500 fee for one paper. And that's the thing they need to, you know, as a stepping stone in terms of their right. their career advancements. I, I, I'm, I always really wonder about unintended consequences when we are thinking of things that we're doing. Like, what could yeah. happen that yeah. just makes sure. this really bad? Yep. And then the predatory journal, as you said, charging. Add that on there, and then, <laughs> right? Then we're, well. And they're not doing any editing. Some of them are just putting your paper out. If you have a mistake, we're not doing mm-hmm. anything. We just want you to get give us $3,500 and we'll put it out as is. <laughs> Absolutely. I am, you know, I, I'm always actually pleased when I get back comments telling me that I have spelling errors or things mm-hmm. like that because it tells me they're actually Someone's doing something. Someone's looking at it, right. right. Uh, yeah. Anyways, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthEx or you can tweet me at at ProfMadFox or Donna at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Gill or Jess. Sure, at Jessica Liebler. Yeah. Are you checking it? <laughs> no. Do you actually see it? <laughs> actually, I don't, I don't remember the password. <laughs> I, I, haven't even, I haven't even written it Jeanette into the script because I know... That you won't actually have looked at it. Jeanette, do you have, do you have a Twitter? <laughs> no, I don't. So I think I have to, even, I have to wait till all my kids are in elementary school, and then I'll and then I'll get on Twitter more. What? Oh, 
I thought you yeah. meant there was something like you had to protect your kids from. No, no, no. It's just the time. It's just the, no, no. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I'd be that controversial on Twitter, but I, but no, no. It's just the time factor. It's yep, just the time enough, factor. Fair so, enough. All soon, right. Matt, one day. Fair enough. <laughs> so you can also find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and zombie podcasting. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>